Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, December the 20th, 2022. Um, 10 days or 11 days left of the year, and we are spending a little bit of time in these last few days of the year, reviewing the year and thinking forward to 2023. It's been, if anything, 2022, a China year. China's dominated the news, and who better to talk about China than my guest today, Orville Shelley, was on the show uh, a month or two ago talking about um, his new novel, My Old Home, but he's been watching China since 1970. Uh, from the East Coast and from the West Coast, and he's joining us today. Orville, welcome. Good to be here. Orville, what kind of year as a China watcher has 2022 been for you? Well, you know, it's, uh, it goes without saying that one hardly has a conversation these days when uh, uh, the question of China doesn't raise its head. Uh, and yet it's now raising its head in a very different way than it did just a few months ago. They're confident, arrogant, locked down. Uh, it thought it had the answer to the COVID virus. It thought the West was in, in the East was rising uh, and that Xi, Jin, Xi Jinping was sort of at the top of his game. And the world was, in his view, balance of power was changing. Now we find a very different situation after the recent uh, demonstrations, after his reversal on the COVID policy, his uh, a whole uh, wrestling match with the question of decoupling with Washington beginning to peck away at some of the key links in the global supply chain, such as microprocessors, et cetera, et cetera. We're in a very different place. Uh, as this year ends, uh, at least in terms of the way China should look at the world than we were when it began. As I said, you've been reporting on China since 1970, one of the most respected uh, men, I think, in the United States when it comes to making sense of China. You're, you're wise enough, Orwell, and you've been doing this long enough to, to know, of course, that um, things change very fast. What do you think in longer-term structural, stru structural consequences, the most important events of 2022. Is it their change on COVID? Does this reflect, and some of the headlines today are about new outbreaks in China, um, does it reflect a serious crack in the regime of, of Xi? I think the failure of Xi Jinping's zero COVID policy, which was in effect a control it uh, and not let it, the absence of an effective uh, vaccine um, uh, is quite a, an arresting uh, uh, failure for Xi. What saw in the dem recent demonstrations was not simply antipathy against the way he was managing the pandemic. What we really saw was a sort of an aquifer of disaffection that had been pooling up beneath the surface things from many other areas, the prolapse, the incredibly tight controls that cities were thrown under, uh, the, the, the 
limitations on people travel, uh, entrepreneurs got kneecapped, companies got disabled from being able to do IPOs abroad, and one could go to these uh, very highly sort of controlling mechanisms that Xi Jinping put in place did create uh, in areas of society, different sectors, a, a, a sense of dissatisfaction and grievance. And I think that's what we saw upwelling during uh, the, the uh, pandemic protests. It wasn't simply the pandemic. There were other things that had, uh, and so it was a very interesting, but a very frightening expression, I think, for Xi Jinping, because he saw that despite all of his efforts to control, societal had a lot of sort of churning uh, disaffection and, and, and unhappiness about his policies. Orville, we've done some shows specifically on Xi Jinping, one with two German journalists respected uh, Adrian Geiges and Stefan Aus. They have a new book out, uh, Xi Jinping, the most powerful man in the world. It came out um, in, the, in the early winter, a couple of months ago in Europe and the United States. Uh, is he still the most powerful man in the world? Is he the most powerful man indeed even in China? Well, certainly he is in China, but he exists in a political black box that, needless to say, is very difficult for us outsiders, uh, even for Chinese to look into. So we have very little uh, sort of evolved sense of what the factional struggles are, what the political issues are inside the discussion, because in a Leninist system, of course, uh, these discussions are not made public. And they, they aren't reflected except in uh, media newspapers and whatnot. So it's hard for us to really tell uh, exactly what the, his power is, but he is a powerful man and China has a very- well, That goes without saying, we know it, but, but that's why we've got you on the show, Orville, you know more than most. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, he also- The, the also, fact that he's powerful goes without saying. And he has an increasingly powerful economy, an increasingly powerful, and he has a very, uh, very uh, expansive pretension to to uh, spread that power around the world through things like road initiative. So uh, yes, he. I would say that uh, he probably is the most powerful man in the world. Someone like Biden is powerful and balanced at every quarter, and Putin we, is another powerful man who is failing grievously in his own efforts to uh, to write himself large in history. How are we going to remember the 20th Party Congress in, in October of this year? Um, cold warriors seem to believe that it represents a return to the Maoism of China. Um, is it going to be an important milestone when historians look back, Orville? You know, uh, I think we may look back in the 20th Party Congress as the last moment when Xi Jinping more or less uh, could rest, uh, you know, uh, in, in confidence that his control mechanisms were working. And then, of course, we got the demonstrations. 
Uh, and now we have various other kinds of uh, uh, problems that he's encountering around the world uh, that, that are disrupting China's place in the global supply chain. So I think that that Congress, which as he watched it, it was almost like a funeral, everything, just everybody in black suits standing perfectly in place. Uh, the only sweet disorder in the dress was, of course, when Hu Jintao wandered in looking rather rather uh, out of it and they had to hustle him off stage. Uh, but other than that, um, control is everything to Xi Jinping and the Congress evinced the, the sort of very highest levels of, of scripted control down to the last detail. But I have a feeling that China is going to have an increasingly difficult time showing that kind of uh, unblemished face to the world going forward. One man who seems to Respect Xi Jinping is Donald Trump, uh, who had a much worse year than Xi Jinping. But I wonder in, in one area whether Trump's been proved right. His policy on China seems to be one now that Joe Biden is um, embracing his big deal on China this year was his block on chips, which the Atlantic described as a big deal. Has American foreign policy and Donald Trump embraced Trumpism when it comes to China in 2022, Orville? Well, I, I mean, I think, uh, uh, you know, many people see Trump as a, uh, as, a, as a nearly complete train wreck as a president. And, and I subscribe to that. I think he's, a, he's sort of a, a, a out of control, very infantile, self-referential man. However, he had some very good people in the White House, actually, that worked quietly on the National Security Council and elsewhere. Uh, and I think we have to credit the administration, <clears throat> if not Trump, with recognizing early on that China actually was beginning to pose a challenge, if not a threat. And uh, I think even Biden recognized that. And Tony Blinken and, and, and Jake Sullivan and the National Security Council, when they came into power, and they had not rolled back most of uh, Trump's China policies. That does not make Trump a great president. But it would be, I think, uh, you know, uh, a, a, a failure of our uh, sort of acuity to overlook uh, the fact that he arrived early at a judgment about China, namely engagement was dead, China was cheating in many different things, and the relationship was unequitable and unreciprocal and unsustainable. Who should take credit then for the the Trump-China policy, if it's not Trump? Who are the people you're referring to? Well, I think some of the national security advisors, but particularly, I mean, there were two people who were in the, on the National Security Council. One ended up as Deputy National Security Advisor, Matt Pottinger, who was a former Wall Street Journal journalist in China and was deeply well acquainted with how things work there and actually speaks very good Chinese. And the other was Matt Turpin, who sort of ran the China things on the National Security Council and was the first person to identify sort of tech as the great, uh, the lists of the future where the joust between the US and China was going to uh, uh, sort of manifest itself. And they, you remember, were the first ones to view 5G as a threat that if we're gonna depend on Chinese equipment for our 5G systems, uh, we are opening ourselves to a certain uh, uh, intrusion. So I think your observation that Biden has not changed China policy 
is a sage one. He's it's evolved. But I think, um, you know, this was a part of the Trump administration that did, I think, um, and sometimes in, in, a, in perhaps a too extreme way, but nonetheless see this evolving uh, a threat on the horizon. Tech, of course, is reflected in uh, Chris Miller. He has a new book out, The Chip War, which just won um, the FT Book of the Year. You mentioned uh, American policy on computer chips. Is this influential, do you think, Biden's chip policy? Yes. And is think... this, uh, does this give us some, um, some promises on what will happen in 2023 when it comes to American trade or lack of trade policy towards China? I think the question of microchips uh, should be watched very carefully because in a way it is a kind of a stalking horse for I think what will happen in other sectors of the economy and also it's a kind of a metaphor of how we're decoupling. Uh, we have a, the Asian Society has a project with Stanford and the Hoover Institution where we're looking at exactly this question of what, uh, what role will microprocessors play in the US, China, Taiwan triangle, and how should we, can we best play that card? And I think here, I would have to say that I think Gina Raimundo and the Commerce Department uh, and uh, Assistant Secretary of Commerce Estevez and, and her China advisor, Elizabeth Economy, are doing a very good job. They recognize the chips are a currency in which the whole world trades and they're elemental to everything. And not the least, which is, of course, national defense and, and, and defense industries. So they're starting to uh, really put pressure on China here because the United States still has an advantage. It's difficult. It's a very, very complicated tableau because everybody is in bed with everybody else. Taiwan has got... Yeah, I, I wanted to mention Taiwan and actually Raimondo's... Uh, being on the show, I'm very impressed with. Her. I wish she'd run for president at some point. Well, she's a wonderfully smart person. I think a very clear. Probably too smart to run for president. Uh, <laughs> when Miller never... was on the show, and I've had him on a couple of times, he talked about how probably the the most innovative and powerful chip company in the world is based in Taiwan. How does Taiwan play into this, particularly in terms of the the the, the chip war in 2022 and 2023, Orville? Well, if what looks at chips is the most important commodity in the world today. Taiwan has uh, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing uh, Corporation, TSMC, uh, in Taiwan, and it makes 92% of all of the world's leading edge chips and over 50% of its legacy chips, its older chips in the higher nanometer range. This means Taiwan is the most important place in the sort of tech world, and yet it is the most fraught and dangerous place in the geopolitical world. So this is an anomaly. And TSMC has fabs in China. They spent, they send an enormous amount of chips to China. They derive a lot of income from China. Qualcomm in our country sells intellectual property and things to China. We're all snarled up together here. And the question is, how are we going to unsnarl ourselves if we fear China as a potential, uh, as an adversary and a potential enemy. How can we get our supply chains free and clear? And that's what we're trying to work out. But this is no easy process and it cannot happen quickly. Orville, are you concerned a little bit with some of the, the younger 
scholars, journalists, commentators in the West on China. I had a couple on the show. One, Andrew Small, a British-based <laughs> sinologist, has a new book out, No Limits, the inside story of China's war with the West. And then uh, Isaac Stone Fish, um, who has a book out called America Second, How America's Elites Are Making China Stronger. Maybe this is slightly anecdotal, uh, but I'm wondering whether the younger generation, generation after yours of people looking at China in the West, have become cold warriors. Are you concerned with that? Is that a fair observation? Well, I think that is undeniably true. And, uh, you know, if I look at my own life, uh, I am a child of engagement. I mean, I grew up when I was studying China way before Nixon and Kissinger went there. But I first went to China in 1975 when Mao was still alive and have worked tirelessly over the next three, four decades to try to build bridges with China. And uh, yeah, had a Chinese wife, uh, speak Chinese, have an apartment in China, lived in and around your, China. And your new book, uh, My Old Home, A Novel of Exile, is semi-autobiographical at least. I mean. It is. And so in a certain sense, I have a, a, a kind of a, a something of a sympathy for the people who've ended up being rather hardline and uh, maybe tipping off into a kind of cold warrior posture because I too have lived this. And I think I realize, and uh, it just sadly, tragically, that if you do not have a reciprocal relation with China, you cannot work things out easily. And there is a deep and abiding sentiment in the Chinese Communist Party, born of its Leninist narrative, of the notion of hostile foreign forces, uh, in Chinese. And that has never, never sort of uh, been removed from their uh, uh, sort of menu of sentiments towards the West. And it makes it extremely difficult. If, if we are seen, and I say we, the West democratic countries, is fundamentally antagonistic because we have different political systems. So I have sympathy with this thing, this idea that China is difficult and uh, it's not necessarily going to be soluble in the liberal democratic world. We tried. Engagement was supported by nine presidential administrations wholeheartedly. And what happened to it? Xi Jinping put a stake through its heart. And we have not kind of figured out what the alternative is. And I'm afraid uh, because of China's inability to respond and reciprocate, uh, the alternative is a kind of neo-Cold War. Sadly, there are hawks, uh, there are doves out there though. Um, very few. See Fred Bergstein was on the show, um, sort of, promoting uh, an economic bilateralism, suggesting that American and Chinese interests are the same in terms of maintaining free trade and the, the global economy. Um, is well, that right. perhaps where uh, liberals or progressives should put their eggs? You know, I think he's absolutely right. And there are others like Jessica Chen Weiss uh, from Cornell who thinks, and I agree with her, we should keep the door open all the time. We should always be trying to engage in diplomacy, always be being trying, always trying to find some off ramps. But sad to say, you cannot 
uh, solve a problem unilaterally. And the great fallacy, I think, of many liberals is to think that America is so powerful and, and we get so critical of our own country, we sometimes think that we can do it alone. But I can tell you, having lived in China for decades, we cannot do that. It takes two. It takes them. It takes them wanting to solve the problem, wanting to collaborate, wanting to, to, to uh, you know, make some concessions and we'd make concessions, give a little, get a little, and you solve a problem. That is not yet evident. Now, will Xi Jinping's failure with zero COVID decoupling, having antagonized so many countries abroad, change his, uh, change his mind? I don't know. We'll see. I don't think it's innately his nature, but it's possible he'll be pushed into it. Uh, Orville, when it comes to the, the Chinese economy, it keeps on being written off. Um, we had Tom Orlick on the show earlier, the chief economist at Bloomberg, very credible uh, economist, who argues that the Chinese economic bubble might never pop. What's your take? on the Chinese economy in 2022 and onwards. Is this an unpoppable bubble? I mean, obviously if it is unpoppable, it's not really a bubble. You know, I think um, the Chinese economy has been quite extraordinary and it has defied lots of predictions and, and, and uh, defied a lot of common wisdom. But I think one thing we do know about every economy throughout world history is that they all uh, are subject to a certain kind of secular, uh, a circular, a cyclical motion. And I do think that has built up the contradictions within its economy uh, to a point where it's like an earthquake. You have a slippage on the fault and you get a tonic orogeny, a big earthquake. And I don't think they're going to be able to avoid that forever. But I do take my hat off to a certain acumen. Uh, an incredible ride. They've done an extraordinary job. Uh, and this country that used to be considered the sick man of Asia is now sort of the world economically. But I think here we have to look very carefully at Xi Jinping's policies because I think uh, it, it be that he will end up being an, an, an extraordinary tragic figure. That just as China is a approaching that place where Chinese enjoy the fruits of their incredible Herculean efforts, uh, Xi Jinping may bring the whole thing down around their ears by antagonizing the world, by, uh, you know, by controlling things uh, to a degree where the economy simply can't function. Because remember, even though it's a socialist economy, it's very dependent on its private businesses. And Xi Jinping is very neuralgic about that. I mean, it doesn't like strong private entrepreneurs because economic power quickly equals political power if and when push comes to shove. What about China buying up the West, particularly its cultural institutions? We had a show with Eric Schwartzell of the Wall Street Journal. Uh, he has a book out, Red Carpet, about China's investment in Hollywood. Is has that been a feature of 2022 or is it coming to an end with the new the new policy with Biden really becoming Trump on China? Well, you know, 
Um, I, I re just reviewed Sell's book for the New York Review of Books. It's about to come out. And I think it's a very interesting book. Uh, and I, one of the reasons that I was so interested in it was not only because of Hollywood and the effort of Hollywood to build a bridge to the Chinese film industry, but because what happened to Hollywood is a kind of a metaphor for what's happening to a lot of foreign uh, uh, corporations in China. They start off with greasyism, they get involved, they make a lot of money, and then as China develops and doesn't need them anymore, they 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 uh, they cut them off and throw them. And uh, that is not a good pattern if you're going to have a reciprocal, uh, ongoing, and long-lived uh, kind of commercial relationship. So I think this book's very interesting because it gives us a, a, a prefiguration of the way China works. When it needs Hollywood, it needs G, uh, it needs to tell stories better, it will borrow. When it doesn't need it, uh, the game over. And that's what Hollywood has learned. Still, the dystopian vision of China in the West is of the social credit system, of surveillance, socialism or surveillance Leninism. We've done many shows on that. The latest big book on it is by the two Wall Street Journal writers, Josh Chin and Lisa Lin. I think Josh was one of your students at one point, Orville. Um, is the social credit system still alive? Is it still something that dominates Xi Jinping's uh, vision of the future of China? Is it coming into place? Well, the social credit system in China is sort of the ultimate education uh, card that's electronic and, and uh, uh, means that they have all the information they, about you that they can hoover up anywhere at any time. And th it means that there can be no privacy and you can also not escape it. Um, now, it's completely rolled out uh, in an effective way yet. But I would have to say that the, the pandemic has enabled China to put to last pieces of this sort of uh, social credit system because in controlling the virus, they made everybody, uh, you know, rare and you have to get uh, QR codes that, that, and you have to show that you're green, red, so you can travel or so you can go to restaurants where you are all the time because they can follow you on your phone. They know everything about you. Uh, so as a result of the virus and the pandemic, in a, they've had a really good pretext to, to develop big aspects of the social credit system. And I think this is very much in line with the thing sees the Communist Party, namely to control uh, as much as possible, avoid disturbances, avoid upheavals and any kind of political dissidents. So uh, uh, it's not affected yet. It's not uh, wholly uh, woven as a fabric on its way to creating a system the likes of which the world has never experienced before. So many good books have been published on China this year. I mean, we mentioned many of them on this show and I'm sure many others I haven't covered. Is there a particular book or two uh, on China in 2022 that's impressed you, that's resonated, Orville? Well, you've mentioned a couple that I've just read. I think the Schwarzel book's a wonderful book. The, the, the book on uh, uh, war, I think, is really relevant, uh, an important reading for, for, for everybody. Um, 
it's just, you know, just starting a whole book page uh, website with The Wire, precisely because there's so many- Is that at the Center books. on US-China Relations? Yes, at the Asia Society. And I mean, the problem is there's so many great books that are just sort of going over the falls without anybody paying much attention. But we need a place to, to kind of celebrate them and, and publicize them because there is no more important country in the world today. Than, and uh, we have a very unclear uh, sense of what it's all about. There certainly isn't, and there's no more, I think, responsible or knowledgeable reporter on China than Orville Schell. Uh, Orville, you, even though you're one of the smartest, if not the smartest man in the room when it comes to China, you can't see around corners. You don't have a crystal ball. But what would you like to see in 2023? How can we begin to build better? We in the West begin, begin to build better relations. And how can Xi have his cake and eat it? I mean, you can't expect him to suddenly have elections, but how could he reform China without necessarily giving up power? Well, you know, you spoke of your your kind of uh, uh, wariness of us entering a new, and I, I, I share that sentiment, and I think we are sort of heading into that direction. But Xi Jinping could pick up the phone today, uh, call Joe Biden and say, listen, Remember, this is a man who, who they've been together for some 30 odd hours, one trip with them across this country. But Biden made a trip across China with Xi when they were vice presidents. Uh, Biden is a big, glad handing back, functional man who really does want to make a deal, unlike Trump. So she called him up and said, listen, the world is in here. And whatever we've both been doing, we've got to stop and find a different way. I want you to point two or three people, send them over to sing of my two, three best people. Let's see if they can't figure some alternative scenarios out where we can start cooperating again on climate change and not have ideological questions up, up setting us all the time. And when we, we can get back to the essence of engagement and what? It was about China was slowly reforming. It was going to become more soluble in the world outside. And we were converge. China was not going to become a Jeffersonian democracy. But there was hope in evolution. That has stopped. That is what has to be if we can arrest this downward slide. And Xi Jinping could do that in a heartbeat. And there was no man on earth would be more receptive to it than Biden. And what about allowing China to lead on some fronts, on the environment, for example? They seem in, in some ways, perhaps because of their political system, to be more effective in confronting our existential uh, environmental crisis. I think it would be a wonderful idea. And they, they could do that very well because they do have command and control, unlike us who are arguing with ourselves all the time. They, it is a patch of sort of like Jack Spratt and his wife, you know, together they lick the platter clean. China has certain things in its authoritarian system when it can, we don't have. And to collaborate uh, could be a, a true case of win-win. And uh, there are other areas. Pandemic would be another logical one. But the problem is that Xi Jinping is so thin-skinned, so 
fearful of looking fallible or weak that he cannot call up Biden and say, listen, send over all the Moderna vaccines and Pfizer vaccines you have. We need to work with you. You something, you give us something. Let's get together and, and stop this pandemic. He won't do it. And, 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 and that's the problem. It isn't common interest. That's where the people you just alluded to are right. We have common interests. But in order to get to the common interest, we have to be. And we don't have that. Not at all. There is absolutely no reciprocity now.